This is The Guardian. Today, as ABBA returned to the stage as avatars, we explore how virtual reality will change the way we see gigs. In Stratford in East London, a vast building project has been going on. Over two years, a steel dome designed to house 3,000 music fans has emerged on the skyline close to the Olympic Park. On its front are four letters. A, B, B, A. I am Ludwig Andersson. I am one of two producers of ABBA Voyage and... I am sitting in the male dressing room of our band together with... Me, I'm Svana Gisla, I'm the other producer, and I'm also sitting in the boys' dressing room in the arena because it was the only room we could find that didn't have people in it. The ABBA arena has had to be specially built because there's no existing venue that could house this experimental new show. The concert ABBA Voyage brings the band back together on stage for the first time in around 40 years, though not in human form. The avatars on stage, or avatars as they've been nicknamed, are designed to transport the audience back to their 1970s disco heyday. People have often talked about whether you can create either people who have lived in the past or people when they were younger, and we actually create ABBA in their prime. 1979. The four avatars in their sequin jumpsuits and flares have been created using motion capture technology by George Lucas's visual effects company. Even for seasoned music writers like The Guardian's Alexis Petridis and Laura Snapes, the show's hard to describe. I've seen it and I don't know how they've done it. And, you know, it, it looks like watching a band on stage. I thought it was absolutely astonishing. I don't want to sound totally down on it. I did have a good time. But, yeah, it still, it weirded me out. Having spent months, not say years, trying to describe what this is, we've sort of ended up with that, yeah, you just have to come see it for yourself as our best Best tagline. <laughs> um, in terms of describing the show, because obviously for the people who have seen it, they've been trying, as you say, not to give away too much. A friend of mine just posted on Instagram, look, all I can say is that my earring pinged off and flew across three aisles while I was dancing. That's all you need to know. <laughs> That's a good one. Can we use that one on the posters? <laughs> this experiment, which has cost £140 million to stage, is likely to be the first of many. Record companies are hungry to please millions of fans around the world, and they want to cash in on their legacy artists. So this could be the start of them coming out of retirement, or perhaps even performing beyond the grave. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, ABBA, Avatars and how VR technology will shape the future of live music. Svana, tell me about your memories of ABBA growing up. 
I remember my mum used to do the hoovering to Appa every weekend. And I come from Iceland, so it's kind of, we go on long car journeys and there's Abba on a cassette in the car and you've got one cassette in the car and you're going away for the weekend. So, you know, it, it goes round and around. And Ludwig, you were born the year that Abba effectively ended the first time. Um, <laughs> is, is that there, a loaded is, question? Is there a correlation? Uh, I don't know. You must tell know. me. I don't know. When do you remember really becoming aware of them? as this huge band that your dad had been part of? I don't know. The thing about my dad is that when Abba stopped, he went on to do other things and he's been working really hard ever since. And, and I did not have a, like a pop star glamorous childhood. He, he, he's a regular guy going to work, coming home in the evenings and making dinner for me and my mom. Come to think of it, the only one time it ever there was this, in, in my school, there was one girl in ninth grade when I was in first grade, and she was a punk rocker. Like, she was super cool. One day at lunch, I walked past her, and I was a little afraid of her, of course, seeing as she was nine years old, and she said something <laughs> along the lines of, oh, what, so your dad was an ABBA, eh? In a threatening way, obviously hating ABBA because she was cool, and ABBA wasn't particularly cool. And that was that's my only memory of anyone ever saying anything or commenting on it. Or so you didn't hear ABBA songs when your dad was doing the hoovering? No, I think Swana had, <laughs> Swana had more ABBA at home than I did. No, there was no ABBA in my house. But you've ended up working alongside your dad, Benny Anderson, as well as the other three members of ABBA on creating this massive stage show that could be running in London for up to five years Svana, tell me about the technology that you're using. If I was to be sitting in the audience, what would I see? How does it feel different to seeing a hologram? It, it's very different from a hologram because holograms are so limited. Holograms live in a, a very confined space and you can't light them. You can't move them around. This is completely different. The technology itself isn't new. It's just motion capture. I say just motion capture, but it's never been done on the scale that we did it's the merging of the digital space and the physical space, which is the trick here. You don't know where the physical lights and space and stage and trusses and whatever, you don't know where they end and the digital ones take over. So you really don't feel like you are looking at pixels. You, you feel like you're just looking at um, another dimension, even if you know your brain is telling you, well, I know they're not there. Your eyes are going, well, I beg to differ. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, and that I think was one of the things we were hoping for, that the, the experience itself was the thing, not getting out of there thinking, wow, what cool technology they used, but actually you put in a state of emotion um, at this concert which you cannot identify exactly where it's coming from. You just have an, a, a powerful emotional concert going experience. And afterwards you, you accept whatever vehicle we use to create that. And it doesn't really matter because you felt something. And that, mm -hmm. was, uh, that was all we could have hoped for really. How did the idea for this show come about? This idea was brought to the office in Stockholm about creating digital humans, digital versions of themselves. And they, for whatever reason, all thought, yeah, that sounds fun. And that's how it started. Svana and I met and we started looking into 
the reality of this and and what can be done and mainly the first year and a half at least was spent finding out what couldn't be done and then we slowly started to put together what this later became what was the initial vision then all those years ago three years ago or so when the the true vision of what this is was put to paper which was it has to be a pop concert and it has to be emotional and uh, and it has to be in a place yeah it has to be in a physical space as in we have to build our own arena when that decision was made then the form of what this is now took place before that it was just an idea of doing something with digital figures or even holograms before that Alexis Petridis, you're The Guardian's chief rock and pop critic. And last year, when ABBA released their first new album in 40 years, it was you who got the exclusive interview with them. So I imagine you've spent a long time listening to their back catalogue. Can you remember when you first heard them? Yeah, I was born in 1971. So my first memory of ABBA would have been about five years old. And my parents had the first ABBA's Greatest Hits collection, the one with them sitting on a park bench on the front. They were sort of some of the first pop music I think I ever ever kind of noticed. And do you remember, like, how were they seen in the 70s, in those first few years when they were having all these big successes, you know, getting all these top 10 hits? Well, obviously, you know, they won the Eurovision Song Contest. Suède, Servant. Sweden, five votes. So, you know, they won that. um, And I think people just assumed that that was the end of them. They put out the album Waterloo, which isn't very good. And then they kind of come roaring back with their self-titled 1975 album, which has SOS on it. And from that point on, they are incredibly commercially successful for the next sort of five, six years. They were not critically, as far as I can gather, taken seriously at all on any level. I don't know if ABBA were seen to sort of merit any kind of serious press attention. What did the general public like about them so much? Why were they popular? Um, Because they wrote a string of absolutely peerless pop songs. It's also been an incredible year for the Swedish band ABBA. They've had three number ones. Bjorn and Benny are the supreme pop craftsmen of their era. There is not a square centimetre of an ABBA song that doesn't have some kind of brilliant melody or musical hook or something in it, you know. But even the ABBA songs that are rubbish are really good, you know, really strong melodically. Dum Dum Diddle, which has one of the worst lyrics ever (laughs) written. A song about a woman who apparently feels sexually threatened by the fact that her partner uh, practices the violin a lot. You're only smiling when you play your violin, she says suspiciously. Um, But the melody of it is absolutely amazing. (laughs) Alexis, how how have we mentioned a a sad song about a violin and not mentioned Dancing Queen yet? Well, I wasn't, no, obviously, Dancing Queen is one of those records that is. You know, it's literally perfect. There is nothing else you can do 
to add or subtract to Dancing Queen to make it any better than it is. It's it's a work of genius. And so they had several years in the late 70s into the early 80s of being incredibly popular. And then yeah. 1982 was when things started to unravel. And I've been watching an interview they did with Noel Edmonds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's... In, tense, it's, it? it's incredibly awkward. Well, I find it difficult really to believe it. it's ten years that you're celebrating now. Yeah, ten years older. Yes. What an amazing success story. Who has guided you over those ten years? It's ABBA's last British TV appearance, by which point they must have known, you know, the jig was up. Both couples have, have separated. The tension between Frida, uh, who is rocking what is 100% a divorce haircut. She's got, like, purple spiky hair. The tension between her and Benny, it's, it's palpable. And there, there is a point where they, they very nearly have a row in, in the middle of this interview, you know, uh, about whether Frida had ever acknowledged what a great songwriter Benny was or not. I mean, Benny Bjorn has written so many good songs. Mm-hmm, thank and, you. Thank yes, you. but you should know about that by now. <laughs> well, you never said that. <laughs> OK, so it's the first time. And I think the other thing that happened by then, pop music had changed. You know, you start seeing, in the, certainly in the British charts, the after effects of punk really clearly. And you, you have things like two-tones starting. You have things like, you know, the first stirrings of the new romantic movement. And by that point, ABBA, who was still huge, Super Trooper comes out in 1980. But they're much more of a mums and dads band. And then in 1981, 82 their sales just fall off a cliff. But, I mean, I think the reason ABBA break up is more to do with the kind of personal situation within the band. And so maybe they realised that ship had sailed. They'd done incredibly well commercially. They'd sold millions and millions and millions of records, and it was time to pack it in. But then in the 90s, they had this incredible resurgence. Yeah. They brought out another Greatest Hits album, ABBA Gold. Yeah. And that was the first album of theirs that I ever bought. I remember okay. going to HMV in Cardiff and right. getting a special edition of it. I was so excited because it had their signatures engraved in gold on the front. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, I know. And that went to number one. So what had happened? How did they get so popular again? I think what happened, as far as, I, and this is just my interpretation of it, the first sign was uh, the rise of Bjorn again, uh, who were, an ABBA tribute act, one of the first kind of tribute acts uh, that really did good business. And I went to see Bjorn again when I was at university, so this would have been 1991-92. And it was absolutely packed, and it was packed with people my age, you know? So it was people who remembered ABBA from being sort of five, six, seven, eight years old. You know, that beautiful period where you love music with this kind of incredible purity. You know, you you just love it because you love it. So I think that was the first sign that people had this incredible degree of affection for ABBA. Mamma Mia comes out, which is, you know, first the musical and then the film. And then the films, I think, have a very important role in sort of introducing ABBA to, to subsequent generations. You know, that's how my daughter, who's nearly 16, knows ABBA is through seeing the film. Yeah, and I think probably what it showed is that the band can take the mickey out of themselves. It's got Pierce Brosnan in it, who notably can't sing. 
Cher appears at one point. I guess it shows the band was treating their legacy seriously, but not with over earnestness. And now they're so popular again that they can build their own arena, betting that multiple generations of families and friends will go to see them. Why did they choose to put on the show in this format rather than appearing on stage in person? ABBA had been offered insane sums of money. I mean, absolutely insane sums of money to reform and tour, and they always turned them down. The thing about ABBA is they never played live very much anyway. Agnetta in particular hated playing live. So, you know, there's absolutely no way they were ever going to embark on some big sort of, you know, Rolling Stones-ish slog around the globe. There's something very, very telling that Bjorn said when I interviewed him. And he said to me, you know, we don't need to do this. And if we didn't think it was the right thing to do, we would have walked away. You know, they don't need the money. You know, Bjorn owns a bloody island. Of course he doesn't need the money. That's why I sort of thought it would be good when I went to see the Voyager show, because if it was something that was going to damage their legacy, they're smart enough not to have done it. Ludwig, I understand that the band spent five weeks working with motion capture experts for the show. What did that involve? Uh, dressing them up in, in terrible um, tight-fitting overalls with dots on them and put, putting cameras on their heads and helmets and things and putting them on a stage in really unforgiving bright white lights surrounded by 160 infrared cameras and over 100 uh, um, wizards from ILM capturing their, their <laughs> movements and, and having them perform their songs doing their performance for five weeks. Of course, that, that's a lot to ask from anyone. What was wonderful about that was that they came through the door after some convincing, of course, and... and uh, the boys we, wouldn't shave their beards, is what he's trying to say. Yeah, we yeah, they, to, they, they, we they almost they, derailed the whole entire thing. Benny and Bjorn wouldn't shave their beards. No, they wouldn't. And, and of course, they, they had to because you can't capture facial movements with a beard getting in the way of, of the cameras. And, and the, the night before, basically, they said, oh, and by the way, we're not going to shave. And, and Swana and I had to spend quite a lot of time explaining to them that if you don't shave, then this whole operation, uh, dressing them up in, in terrible... Um, um, so in the end, they did, uh, which was a good thing. Ludwig, what did your dad, Benny, say to you after he'd sat in the audience for the opening show and, and seen it? Well, I mean, he, he, he had been here already for a month uh, working on the band and, and getting the sound right and all of that. So uh, we would speak afterwards and... and um, the way he and I talk to each other, I suppose the kind of thing he would have said would be something along the lines of, well, well, that wasn't terrible. No, or, was you, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> which means, uh, you know, that's a Swedish uh, kind of understatement. And I, I know what he means. Svana, it costs £140 million to put this show on. How long will it have to run in order to make a profit? Forever. Forever. We will never recoup. Don't tell the investors. <laughs> this was the, That's another thing that may sound surreal, and there's an audacity to this. Um, this wasn't made as a commercial venture. It was always to create something that's never been done before and really, really take it as far as it could possibly go. It may be about legacy, I don't know, but for us... It, we, we just simply got given the task of, of making this vision come alive and create the, the most incredible concert we could do, and, and that's what we did. 
Laura Snapes, you're the Guardian's deputy music editor and you're joining us now because you went along to the first night of the ABBA show as well as Alexis. So tell me, what did you think of it? I had very mixed feelings. I was very surprised when I came out and saw a lot of five-star reviews, including Alexis. It was technologically amazing and we were sat far enough away and my eyesight is bad enough that I couldn't have told you if those were humans or not on the stage. It definitely looked real. But I found it really hard to emotionally connect with, nonetheless, you know, knowing that they actually weren't. And something that I found, there was a lot of things I found strange about it. One was that sometimes you could see the human-sized things on stage and there would be sort of projections either side in the same way you would get at any massive gig. But then at other points, the tiny human people disappeared and it was just like you were watching a big music video. And also something I didn't like about it was that there's very real, very adult relationship drama in their songs. And you can feel like the pain and the bitterness of their evolving relationships and their disintegration go on over the course of those albums. And there's something about how the avatars are sort of perennially cheerful about it and sort of sentimental and winking about all of this stuff. And I just felt like it slightly betrayed the reason that people like those songs is because they're not tidy. There's not like a sort of sweet resolution to them. So I found it very strange. I don't want to sound totally down on it. I did have a good time. Right, Alexis, what have you got to say about that? <laughs> um, what I think about that is that if you see footage of Abba Live, you see footage of the tour they did in 1979, the big, they played Wembley over here. That's kind of what they were like on stage. There's that kind of cheesy aspect to what they do. So I, I, that didn't bother me, the kind of sort of, I guess, in inverted commas, show busy nature of it. How were the crowd around you responding to it? Um, I was sat quite close to Jarvis Cocker, who did not move once, which was quite funny <laughs> to watch. Um, and uh, apparently near the King and Queen of Sweden, although frankly, a lot of the people there looked like they could have been the King and Queen of Sweden. I did think when I looked down onto the bit, the, like, the floor where people could dance, it wasn't as high octane as going to you know a gig that's by real people. I thought that there would be a lot more you know visible dancing. I don't know what it was like where Alexis was. People were going bananas i mean you know there was a lot of interaction and for some reason chikatita was the song that seemed to you know everything really took off with that there was also this kind of slightly weird thing going on that you wouldn't definitely wouldn't get at a normal gig where people were kind of looking around them a lot as well as looking at the stage as if like are you seeing what i'm seeing but jarvis cocker completely unmoved by the whole experience i love that he was quoted in the New York Times afterwards and he said that he was left in a state of emotional confusion. And I think that was what was uh, causing the stationary uh, position. <laughs> oh. I was going to say there is something emotionally confusing about it, though, in that for moments we have this kind of complete suspension of disbelief. At the end of the show after the big finale, Abba, who were there, all four of them were there at the, the, the first night, came on stage as they are now and everybody went mental you know, as he would do. And that's quite a striking moment because obviously you've seen this sort of younger version of them all night and on they come. And then the real ABBA walked on stage. So the thing that people went mental for was another set of avatars, which I thought was, I thought that was the most kind of like uncanny moment of the whole thing. Coming up, how might other artists use this technology? Hello, this is Max Rushton from the Guardian Football Weekly. I hope you're enjoying your other Guardian pod. And look, you've read 58 articles now and you're still not contributing. So why not come to our live tour? Uh, we're in Leeds on the 13th of June, Birmingham on the 15th, 
Manchester on the 19th, Glasgow on the 13th of July. The panellists are brilliant. Uh, me and Barry are getting away with it, but they're really fun occasions and uh, we'd love you to come. few tickets remaining for some, lots of tickets remaining for others, no tickets remaining for others. Don't know why, that's just we're popular in Dublin and not in Birmingham. But please come along, myticket.co.uk. Uh, you can get your tickets at myticket.co.uk. Alexis, Laura, do you think this technology is going to be used to bring back artists who've passed? Are we going to see an Elvis version of this? And do you have an artist you would like to see come back in this way? Uh, no, because I hate the idea. It really grims me out. And I think that it's a sort of weird sort of consent thing to do that to somebody who's dead unless they've explicitly signed off on it. When it's orchestrated by living artists who are handling their own legacy, that's one thing that feels very different to like a Whitney Houston one or an Amy Winehouse one, which really creeps me out. But the idea that in any way that um, virtual gigs would ever replace a real life gig, I hate that idea. And I really hope that's not a future that ever comes to pass. We've seen things like this tried before. People will probably remember Coachella in 2012 when Tupac appeared as a hologram performing alongside a real-life Snoop Dogg. And, you know, there's a hologram of Whitney Houston, who is still playing in Las Vegas, neither of which have been terrifically, critically well-received. This is different. From what I understand, part of the problem with holograms is if you're not looking at them dead straight on, um, the image is really unclear or it's sort of it's partially obscured or something like that. The two-pack thing is a one-off, you know, it's a, a highlight moment at a festival, that's fair enough. I think the general consensus of opinion from what I could gather reading the reviews of the Whitney Houston thing was that it was a bit tacky. Do you think these digital avatars could be the future then? We know it's expensive at the moment, but obviously the cost should gradually come down. Could it ever replace live gigs? I don't think it's going to replace live gigs. I just don't. I think that there is something different about going to see this. It's somewhere, you know, between going to see a gig and going to see a movie or something, you know. And I don't think it's, you know, I think Laura's right. It's not the same, completely the same visceral experience as, as seeing a live band, although obviously there is a live band on stage. I, I, I would be astonished, given the sort of uh, rapacity of the music business and the, you know, reliance of record labels on catalogue artists in order to bring in guaranteed money, I would be amazed if there aren't other versions and I would be amazed if they don't feature artists who are deceased. Would it arguably work better for some artists who are, you know, kind of legacy artists who are still going, but who, you know, if you see them live now, they're not, their voices aren't up to what they used to be. Might, might people maybe prefer <laughs> to see a, I'm trying to be kind, um, <laughs> Uh, might people maybe prefer to see a, a younger version of them? No, I, I think people pay the money for the proximity, don't they, to that. That's what you're doing when you go and see, you know, Paul McCartney or whoever. You're paying to be in the same room as a Beatle. If you go and see the Rolling Stones live, 
they can be absolutely terrible or they can be really, really good. And the reason they can be absolutely terrible or really, really good, and sometimes they can be absolutely terrible and really, really good at the same gig, is because they're an actual band playing live. Mm -hmm. There isn't, for example, ancillary musicians hiding under the stage, as there are with at least one enormous stadium rock act that I know of. That, <laughs> uh, there isn't a lot of stuff on that. And, and you don't realise that until you go and see someone like the Stones. And you go, like, oh, God, that's actually what a rock band sounds like. You know what I mean? It's very different from going to see uh, lots of stadium acts now. So I don't think any of them would go for it. Laura, one huge downside of a show like the ABBA one is that the audience can't interact with the performers. You know, if I'm there holding up my I love Benny and Bjorn sign, I can't get them to shout I love you back to me, can I? Not, you know, not to suppose that they would do that, but um, it, it can't replace the experience of actually being in the same room as your favourite musicians. No, totally. I mean, two days before I went to that ABBA thing, I went to see Harry Styles live. And I think his new album is a bit six out of 10, but in a room full of screaming people who adore him and he plays so well off that, it just becomes a pure 10 out of 10 experience. Like he interacts with the crowd really well. People are holding up signs. One girl had a sign saying like, my boyfriend slept with my best friend or something like that. And he did this whole thing where like he got her name and he got the story and he asked the crowd what we would say to her boyfriend. And then he was very shocked that everybody instantly came up with something quite rude. And you can't replace those moments. That was amazing. That's a really good point. You know, I would never describe myself as a huge Coldplay fan. But, you know, Coldplay are extremely good at headlining Glastonbury. And the last time they did headline on the Sunday night, I was totally swept away with it. And that's never going to happen at a gig like this. It just doesn't work that way. For a start, you wouldn't go and see a show like this by a band you didn't like in the first place. So it's never something that's going to change your mind in the way that a, a, a proper live gig can do. But Alexis, are you saying all... you wouldn't take a chance on a band that you didn't like? Oh, very good. I think I was a bit more sort of blown away by the experience than Laura was. But the little part of it is like, yeah, bring it on. You know, I'd like to see what someone tries next. I'd like to see <laughs> Elvis, you know, Queen, whatever it's going to be. Yeah, great. Alexis, Laura, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Ludwig Anderson, Svana Giesler, Laura Snapes and Alexis Petridis. If you get chance to see the show, please get in touch with us and let us know what you think. This episode was produced by Musty Aziz and Tom Glasser and sound designed by Ian Chambers. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. I hope you have a lovely weekend. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. Thank you.